Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Hello, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hey, how are you, Karen? I'm well, thank you. How are you, Julica? Thanks. Hey, Sue, welcome. Hi. Sue, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so grateful that you're going to be our storyteller because I got to watch you rehearse your story and you are a good storyteller. Thank Why, you. So thank much. you. I love to tell stories. Yeah, stories are really helpful for us, aren't they? They really help us frame and understand the world differently. They use sure. different parts of your brain. That's yeah. That's great. I know I, I, I live on stories. I, I collect them and I just need one word sometimes to remind me of a story. If you say the word porgy, which is a fish on the Atlantic coast, oh. I'll remember my father figuring out how to turn off the lights and grab a porgy at the same time off the table, even though it's 10 feet away. It's <laughs> magic. It's a story I can't forget. That's really funny, Karen. I wish I was there. <laughs> I still can't figure it out. It's been 50 years. Amazing. <laughs> well, I, I think stories are really important to help us make sense of things. It really, it, just, it really makes a difference when we can tell a story that has a narrative and that hangs together. I, I find it very reassuring. Absolutely. Yeah. It's great to see people are already saying hello in the chat. I think we should go ahead and get started. So welcome everyone. Really glad that you're here. My name is Julica Herman de la Fuente. I am the Director of Liberation and Transformation Ministries here at First Universalist. And I'm super glad you're here with us, whether you are here with us live and saying where you're coming in from in the chat, that's great. Keep doing that, please. And make sure that you're speaking to both panelists and all attendees. Or maybe you're watching this recording later. And that is also great. We're really glad that you're with us. I would like to give a special welcome to those of you who might be first time visitors. I'm really glad you found us. And it's for you especially that I say these words every time I welcome you to worship so that you know who you found, but also so that we are all reminded of who we are together. For over 160 years in the universalist spirit of love and hope, we are the people who give, receive and grow together. We are the people who welcome, affirm and protect the light in each human heart. We listen deeply to where love is calling us next and with humility, courage, and compassion, we act to create a more just world. We do all of this as a faith community committed to ending all forms of oppression and especially committed to racial justice. This is the life that we invite you into when you journey with us, and this is the spirit alive in our worship today. As we begin our worship service, let's take some smooth breaths together. Let's take a moment to ground, to arrive here now, to notice what is true in our bodies right now and to welcome it and to be with it lovingly and gently. Whatever is good and helpful, I invite you to do that now. Mm -hmm. 
is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Hello. Anansi is a spider and a trickster. He loves to trick other creatures and fool them so he can get something that he wants for himself. Now, the stories about Anansi originated a long time ago in the Ashanti region of West Africa, uh, in the southern part of Ghana. But when some of the Ashanti people were enslaved and brought to Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean and the United States, they couldn't bring their material possessions, but they could bring their culture and the stories that they held in their hearts. And so today, stories about Anansi are told both in Africa and here in North America. Now I said that Anansi is a trickster and a trickster needs to be smart, especially if you're a little spider and you're trying to fool creatures that are bigger and stronger than you are. So Anansi was shrewd, and he was cunning. And once he thought, what if I knew it all and nobody else knew it? What if I had all of the wisdom? Ooh, I could fool everybody then and they wouldn't even know it. So he set out to find all of the wisdom for himself. He saw some information there and he grabbed it and he put it in a big clay pot and some knowledge there and he put it in his pot. And soon his pot was filling up with facts and data and more knowledge and information and wisdom until he had it all. And he slammed a lid on and he sealed it tight. And he was pretty satisfied for a little while. And then he started to fret. Ooh, what if someone steals my pot? Ooh. He worried more and more about this until he decided he would have to hide his pot of wisdom where no one else would find it. So when he thought no one was watching, he took that pot and he went into the jungle with it. And he looked around till he found the tallest towering palm tree and he began to climb it. Now, his plan was to hide his pot way at the very top, hidden among the leaves. This wasn't as easy as he thought, though. See, Anansi has eight arms and legs, and he's usually a good climber, but he had to have some of those arms and legs clutching that pot in front of him, and then, and then he tried to reach around it and hold onto the trunk. Well, that was hard. He made a few inches progress a little ways up. <laughs> Hard work. He went a little further, a little. Oh, he slipped. Oh, oh. He caught himself. He almost fell. He almost dropped his pot. Oh, he'd have to be careful. He was going to take a long, long time to get up this tree. He started up again. He was getting very frustrated. Now he thought no one had seen him go into the jungle. But his oldest son, Entakuma, he had seen and he had followed his father. And now Antakuma was standing down at the base of the tree watching Anansi climb or try to climb. Daddy, Daddy, what's in that pot? Antakuma, what are you doing here? Go home. Daddy, why are you taking a pot up a tree? 
Son, it's not your business. Go home. Daddy, uh, Daddy, if you put the pot on your back, it would be a lot easier. Now, Anansi knew a good idea when he heard it. Do you think he took Entakuma's advice? No, no, he got mad. He thought, this boy, how could he be smarter than me? I'm his father. Oh, I'm supposed to have all the wisdom right here in this pot. How could he be so wise? Anansi got madder and madder and more and more angry until he, he took his pot of wisdom and he threw it to the ground. Well, don't worry, it didn't hit Entakuma. He wasn't even aiming for Entakuma. He was just so mad he wanted to throw something and he did. And the pot broke into so many pieces and the wisdom went flying everywhere. It tumbled out on the ground, it rolled among the trees. Oh, Anansi scurried back down the trunk and he, he tried to gather it up again, but the wind blew it around and well, he didn't have anything to put it in now. And then it started to rain and the rain came down gentle at first, but then harder and harder and harder. And it washed the wisdom away down into a stream. And that stream flowed into a big river that carried the wisdom out into the sea. And the currents of the ocean spread it all around the world. And so they say that that is why today wisdom is everywhere. Little bits of it here, little bits of it there. It's not all in one pot or one country or, or one way of thinking about things. And when we go searching for truth and meaning, well, there's a lot of places we might find it. So now, please join Seth in singing, We Shall Be Known. This song includes a familiar clapping pattern, so feel free to clap along with me. be known by the company we keep by the ones who circle round to tend these fires we shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth it is time now it is time now that we thrive it is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning we shall learn to lead in love. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle round to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now. It is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. 
It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. Yes, in this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. And thank you, Sue, for that story. I was with you in the jungle. Like You're just so good at making me feel like I'm right there with you. That was really enjoyable. I really appreciate it. <sighs> so let us indeed go to the well. It is time to go to the well, as Seth sang, the well of collective prayer. Let us invoke love. Let us name our struggles, our joys, as we do every time we gather. Let us name our truths and have them held in community. I call on the ancestors and I call on the great cloud of witnesses. I name all those that came before and sang and danced and prayed and worked and struggled together to create a better life for themselves and for their descendants. That's us. Thank you, ancestors, for everything that you did. We are grateful for this time together. We are grateful for a safe space to acknowledge all of our feelings. And I also wanna keep it real. And I wanna acknowledge that some of us don't have good stories or any stories of our ancestors. Some of us are healing a lineage of generational trauma. So I also call on the values that we hold high and that help us live into our best lives. I call on healing and love and peace and transformation, the qualities that help us stay on the path of growth and help us get free. I name today that this pandemic is not done. And some of us are struggling with the disconnect of seeing people gather without masks. And some of us are parents of young children who don't have the option to be vaccinated yet. And some of us are those young children wearing masks still. And some of us are living immunocompromised lives and are not included in the guidelines and rules that are being put in place. And I also name that we are resilient and tenacious and that we will continue to find ways to create joy and to play and to love. We have been and continue to be challenged by the dual pandemics of COVID-19 and of oppression, and we continue to find creative ways to survive and thrive. And we also celebrate because joy is a most necessary ingredient in our collective liberation. I personally celebrate that we are just a few days away from welcoming Dr. Glenn Thomas right out to our congregation and our worship team. We're gonna have such a good time. I am so looking forward to his leadership and to what is going to happen in our collective worship lives. It's very exciting. And now it's your turn. Tell us, how is it with your spirit this morning? What would you have us hold with you? What's hard? What's joyful? What challenges do you and your beloveds face? 
so that we can hold them with you and what small wonderful things are helping you keep going. Today we will share both joys and sorrows together as we experience them in our lives every day. Yes, thank you, friends, and for helping us hold it all together. We are stronger together, and it's good that we know that and remember that. For the things shared and for the things held quietly in our hearts, holding it all together, we pray. May the grip of addiction be loosened. May the weight of oppression be lightened. May grief be shared, may joy break through, and may love make every suffering bearable for us all. Amen. story, and then a proposal for Unitarian Universalism. Story. I am a homo sapien. sapien. I am a stoop-sitting colored girl. I am an anthropologically religious soul. I am a garden variety American Negro. I am a human's human. I am the creation of European nautical innovation, and the suggestion of a Catholic priest, Bartholomew de las Casas, to bring Africans to the Americas as slaves. I am someone who would not exist in North America without technological mix matches, greed, avarice, and most importantly, the lethal cocktail of capitalism and 16th century European Christianity. At every point of contact, capture, transport, passage, arrival, sale, and distribution as chattel property, we, the people of a darker hue, have consistently said to ourselves, we are humans, and displayed all the human attributes that led us to that conclusion. We loved, we had conscience, we created family, we suffered, we felt joy, we reflected. This is the backdrop of my narrative as a black humanist. Born in 1958, there are many descriptions for my family in Philadelphia. Striving Negroes, the, fir the first black, the talented 10th, black and proud. My dad was from Jersey, my mom was from South Philly. 
And after Sputnik went up in 1957, my dad was recruited because of his brilliant math mind to attend Drexel University, where he was the first black to obtain a dual degree in two types of engineering. My mother was a homemaker and later a social worker. I was the first black kid to desegregate the public schools in Philadelphia, which later thrust my dad into politics. We lived in a segregated neighborhood in my early years with doctors, lawyers, judges, laborers, truck drivers, unemployed people, maids, artists, all living on the same block. Later, my family chose to integrate and we moved to a Jewish neighborhood, 50-50, black and Jewish for five years. I went to Hebrew school and the Jewish kids went to freedom school. We all danced to Sly in the Family Stone and smoked pot in the park with the hippies on the first Earth Day, 1971. Yet Saturdays were different. I happily went with my Nana and my aunties on my mother's side around the neighborhood of West Philadelphia, selling watchtowers and awakes. And we played games to see if we be clever enough to get people to answer the door. My Nana would knock on the door. They'd see it's Jehovah's Witness. They'd run, close the blinds, turn off the lights. Then I'd say, let's go around the back. We'd go to the back door and knock, and we'd catch them. Engage them in Bible study. I was a Jehovah's Witness, and I loved everything about being part of a special group of people that Jehovah would save from the raging fires of Armageddon. I was a young pioneer and later a field service speaker at 12 years old. The community was fun and the hamburgers we used to eat at the Jehovah's Witness conventions at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx were delicious. I live for those hamburgers every year. But when my mother sought a divorce, she was disfellowshipped. And I went right along with her because it didn't seem fair. I began to see that something was terribly wrong with this faith. In 1972, I left the Jehovah's Witnesses at 14 after getting into a debate with the circuit servant about the Black Panthers and my homosexuality. So instead of sitting in the Kingdom Hall listening to Apocalypse, I started spending my time in museums and libraries and joining organizations on my quest to understand my environment, my country, my world, my existence, and my purpose in the context of this incredible societal and cultural evolution that was happening in the early 70s. By 16, I had come to fully embrace evolutionary science theories as belief system that could best hold my questions, creativity, and optimism. It was holding my optimism regarding the earth and the human condition. My spiritual world became rooted in my life experiences and the desire to be in relationship with the many creative options for humans. There's nothing that humans couldn't do, I felt. While I was anthropologically engaged, I still had these religious impulses that remained mysterious and it was okay that I didn't understand them. They were there and it was okay. While I never believed in a revelatory creator anymore with the supernatural power to guide and control the spirit of human beings or events, instead, I started to believe that our ability to choose, care, commune, and create, all of that made us religious. 
I began to think like the religious naturalist, Loyal Rue, who describes religion as, and I love this term, an attitude towards life. Religion is an attitude toward life. I began to agree with the idea of not latching on to a superhuman personality to get into heaven or to save me from, from some crisis or some apocalypse, but instead to use this gift of life to discover how to be fully human in the here and now. I dispensed with having any theological meta-narrative or absolute formulation that constructs a singular symbolic system that guided me. I did not believe I needed a God who is a conscious agent or designer to have a spiritual experience or to sustain my moods or to guide my spiritual or moral life. Rather, I believe that biological evolutionary processes and the constant self-creativity of human cultures were the prime movers of the human project. These beliefs were firmly rooted by the time I was 17 and left for college to Boston University to study geology, environmental science, and anthropology. These beliefs informed all aspects of my life which later in Boston became grounded in the ethics found in Unitarian Universalism. It was at Arlington Street Church in Boston that I claimed to be a humanist at 21. Much of my process of becoming and remaining a humanist comes from my own understanding of being an African in America. I believe that my life task is to wake up each day and continue to envision myself as a human, despite the inhuman response to my very existence. Each day I do that. In the past decade though, there has been an explosion of black folks who identify as humanists. And many of you may not know that. They're identifying as humanists, free thinkers, secularists, and they are conferences, new groups, African-American Humanist Association, Black Free Thinkers. They are conferences, meetups, virtual gatherings, and many of these are young folks under 50. It's an exciting time to be a Black humanist. And while African-American humanism shares the human-centered emphasis of humanism broadly, there are some distinctions because of our context. Humanism started early in the Americas with black people because we brought with us an African outlook that was ontologically anthropocentric. Everything in African religiosity is viewed in terms of its relation to the human person. In all traditional, and I'm saying traditional pre-European cosmologies, it is centered more on humans than more on God. God is there, but more like a deist sees God. African and African-American humanistic religiosity is focused on the enhancement of human existence rather than on the natural world of the divine. The human person is seen as the center of the universe and the entire creation is seen as being there to serve human purposes, whether it's good or evil. The African diaspora looks for the usefulness of the universe in relationship to humanity. It has to do with both what the world can do for them and what they can do for the world. 
the greatest manifestation of African humanism can be seen in the liberation struggles from colonization in Africa and the Caribbean in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in particular. So these movements led the breaking of the tie to Europeans' grip on African material, culture, and land. And Africans were bent on salvaging their lands by means of offering a humanistic philosophy to their people and in the wars that they had to fight against the Europeans. But they wanted to demonstrate agency based on the need for liberation, freedom, independence, rebirth, emancipation, enlightenment, and intellectual awakening of Africa's original orientation. Nelson Mandela, Adame Aziwiki, Obafeme Olawufu of Nigeria, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Kenneth Kwande of Zimbabwe of Zambia, and Leopold Senghor of Senegal, Julius Nereri of Tanzania, all free thinkers, all humanists. Humanistic ideals continue to move back and forth across the Atlantic. I remember in the 90s attending W.B. Du Bois is buried in Ghana. And I remember there's a W.B. Du Bois Center for Pan-African Thought. And it's all humanistic thought. Africans throughout the world who gathered from Jamaica and Haiti and the Dominican Republic and all parts of Western Africa and Southern Africa come to Accra once every five years to think about these humanistic relationships. As I said, it's an exciting time to be a Black humanist free thinker. Now, that's the end of my story. But among many younger Unitarian Universalists, particularly European-American white uh, Unitarian Universalists, traditional humanism, i.e. 1932-1973 Humanist Manifesto Humanism, have lost much of its appeal. Or we see that there is a schism between more theist, spiritual young UUs and more rational, secular, older UUs. I'm just going to put it out there. That's, that's the schism that's happening in our faith. A lot of the ministers that are coming up are more spiritual, and a lot of the congregations that they may go to are more humanist. So in the last few decades, some UUs felt that humanism was overly rational and ignored the emotional and feeling aspects of the self. Many of these younger UUs and others felt that it was placed too much emphasis on the individual and not enough emphasis on community. Some found that humanism was intellectually satisfying, but cold and passionless and unfriendly. Many felt that it was too human-centered and placed human concerns and needs and values over the well-being of non-human beings and the natural world itself. Some felt that humanism was overly optimistic in its view of human nature and its great potential and that it lacked an adequate explanation or theology of evil, sin, and suffering. And many of us felt that although it affirmed freedom of belief, it was often dogmatic and intolerant of other beliefs. Now friends, as someone who many times has been classified as a crusty old humanist, I'll, I'll take that. 
I'll take it. I've been a humanist a long time. So I, I know I have my crusty days and my intolerant days and my calcified days and my overly enlightenment days. But I've seen the pendulum of beliefs and practices in our faith is swinging. And pendulums, often people describe pendulums as swinging one way and sort of stopping. This pendulum has swung to the left or it's swung to the right. But as I sat here this morning with a little pendulum, I noticed that it doesn't stop. It keeps moving. It keeps moving back and forth. It doesn't stop until the energy stops. It doesn't stop until faith stops. Our pendulum in Unitarian Universalism is not swinging away from humanism, but it's swinging to make Unitarian Universalism more inclusive to UUs that identify themselves as pagans and Buddhists, as liberal Christians, theists, religious naturalists, religious liberals, or simply spiritual. If we humanists are as expansive to the human impulse to creativity as we profess that we are, we should not feel pushed out of Unitarian Universalism by the inclusion of earth-centered and neo-pagan rituals, the celebration of Jewish and Christian holidays, praying during Sunday services, or the use of the word of God, spirituality, worship, and reverence. We should not feel threatened, but curious about the human potential, the fact that human beings and human nature can create all of these different paths for people to find meaning and purpose in their lives. I, a diehard humanist, can sit next to someone who's a neo-pagan and rejoice that they have found a human path to their life meaning. I also believe that we're all humanists. To paraphrase a colleague, Christine Robinson, a UU minister, she says this very well. She says, we may be Christian humanists, Jewish humanists, agnostic humanists, pagan humanists, or naturalistic humanists, but we're all humanists to the extent that we value human experience and reason. We're all humanists when we work for justice and con concentrate our religious efforts on this life rather than the next. Thank you, Reverend Robinson. Friends, we need humanism to force us to look at the here and now and the who and what of life to make it ethical and to make us have thoughtful and caring choices that serve the common good of all people and all beings on earth. We need humanity at the center of our religion. And we also need clarity about what realities are larger than us that are carrying us, what communities, what ground, what land, what ancestors, what beauty, what spirit, what visions of the future carry you. Coming to such clarity and letting it guide our lives is a form of reconciliation between theism and atheism, between the Yankee Unitarians and the Midwestern Universalists. We will also need humanity at the center of our religion. But when pain, heartbreak, 
vulnerability and fear are ascendant, we also need realities larger than ourselves into which we can place our trust. And life-changing decisions must be made without knowing fully the consequences of those decisions. We need realities larger than ourselves to catch us as we surrender, let go, perhaps fall. Learning to trust such larger realities is a form of reconciliation with all that is human, all of our possible ways of understanding. We will always need humanity at the center of our religion, but we also need sources of joy and hope and love larger than ourselves. Learning to draw on such sources is a form of reconciliation between the Enlightenment and Black Lives Matter. We will always need humanity at the center of our religion, but we also need realities larger than ourselves to quiet us, to center us, to ground us and surround us with silence. Beseech us to listen and to keep us humble. We will always need humanity at the center of our religion, but we also need realities larger than us to inspire and embolden us to take action for justice and liberation. Not only for my human siblings, but for the earth and all of its creatures. Taking such action is a form of reconciliation a form of reconciliation, something that only humans can do with the conscience that we have. I am a Unitarian Universalist humanist. I say this with no ambivalence. Knowing that we live in uncertain times, each of us needs every piece of ourselves to remain clear about what's happening, courageous in our actions, and spiritually whole so that we respond at our best. Find a human in you, discover it, explore it, play with it. We are not the humanists we used to be. I certainly am not, but I am grateful that humanism gives me the space to evolve, to be all that humanity makes possible. Amen and blessed be. For listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, 
visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. 